0: On the Empire podcast this week, boyhood star Ethan Hawke drops by the pod booth for five minutes a year for the last 12 years and we welcome the decidedly non-violent director of a most violent year, J.C. Jandor. All that and the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that really wanted to snow in London but it's just not happening. There's never an elsewhere around when you need one, is there? Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. and Welcome to the Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store. I've almost learned this bit off by heart now. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Empire. That offer code again, Empire. Okay, so this week's two, not three, two colleagues of such lethal cunning are a geek queen who's also an anti-monarchist, which is like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. (laughs) It's Helen O'Hara.
1: Okay, uh, that isn't really ironic. It's just unfortunate. Uh, We've had this discussion about Alanis before, Chris. I
0: love Alanis. Next colleague is an online bigwig who's entirely bald, which is like a death row pardon, two minutes too late. Hello, James Dyer.
2: Hello, Chris. Never you, go you've full stretched
0: allows. this Alonis <laughs> I, really I think, I Look, think beyond Look, I wrote the introduction, and by God, I'm sticking to it. Fair enough. Don't make me ad-lib. Bad things happen when I ad-lib. We've established yeah, this. It. is true. Right, you've sent in questions this week. We've received said questions, gratefully. And here they are. This is one fine email from Ross McKay, who says, Hi, about to move to Australia. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Yeah, like the TV program Wanted Down Under.
1: Uh, sure, Grand mm. Designs Australia.
0: Ooh, that sounds good. Chef Australia.
1: <laughs> Let's move on.
0: Okay. Uh, had an argument at work. I insisted best film ever set in Australia was Finding Nemo. Interesting. Made me think, other than USA and UK, if you could only watch films set in a particular country, <laughs> what country would it be? Now, no disrespect to Ross, but I'm ignoring his actual question. Um, <laughs> because I think I'm going to take issue with the, the first part of that. The best film ever set in Australia was Finding Nemo.
1: It's. I think it's a credible argument. To be honest.
0: Okay. Okay. Let's hear the credible argument.
1: Finding Nemo is great. Okay. It's set in Australia.
0: <laughs> All right. I'm convinced. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Uh, I'm. I'm going to say that 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 A is a technicality.
1: It's not. It's Sydney's you know, in it. If yeah. The Opera House is in it. That's totally yeah. Australian.
0: Um, B. It's a cartoon, not a real film.
1: I'm kidding, I'm
0: kidding. I'm, Jesus Christ. I'm gonna set John Last. <laughs> pitchforks at Dawn, everybody. There are better films set in Australia. Like Well, the Mad Max trilogy for
1: one. I knew you were gonna say the Mad yeah, Max trilogy. That was
0: always where you were going with this. Yeah. He's no, not wrong though.
2: He yeah. is but
1: wrong. I've fair, watched he... the Mad Max trilogy <gasps> recently.
0: Get uh, me behind specifically
1: me.
0: Mad, Mad Max, Max 2. Two. Yes.
1: Yeah. And yes.
0: Okay. Do you want more specifics? No. Wake in Fright.
1: Wake in Fright's good. Okay, fair enough.
0: Most early Peter Weir films. Yeah. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, you know, didn't love it first time I watched it. I could tell. Right well, it
2: okay, look, recent stuff. Babadook.
1: Babadook was great. Okay. Um, Muriel's Wedding.
2: The Total I Recall love. remake. No, wait.
1: Oh, wait, no. I'll Australia. be honest, I haven't, I've tried to avoid films set in Australia um, because I watched Wolf Creek and it scared me too much and I don't want to watch because if that's what Australia's like i don't want to go there that i don't want to know anything about it
0: because you're a, you're a, an australianist
1: <laughs> i'm Australian. I, hey some of my best friends are australian
0: the proposition another
2: good one
1: okay yeah mm-hmm. lantana listen there are good films set in australia
2: mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know
1: so far only finding nemo is really a classic
2: uh,
0: uh, uh, i i'll I see that and raise you crocodile dundee and of course crocodile dundee too which inferts the plot of Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> where he goes to America, but in Crocodile Dundee too, he goes to Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Big I'm saying, Empire. I'm saying any of those films, uh, Animal Kingdom. Uh, but this is tricky because yes, Finding Nemo is brilliant, but I don't think of it as an Australian film. I know it's a film which just happens to be set for some
1: reason. It's set in Australia. It's yeah, not, yeah. It's not made in Australia.
0: Why then are there so few characters with Australian accents?
1: Because they're fish. Fish are international, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the entire film, though, is set in Australia, technically, because don't they live on the Great Barrier Reef? That's, you know, Australian waters. I'm saying the whole thing is Australian set. It's not like, you know.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah, It's yeah. not tenuous. Okay. It's fairly solid. So, you, Okay, so where did they get their accents from? They speak with American accents. Jeffrey well, Rush is in it. He's a pelican. And Eric Banner's in it, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. but
1: th- that's because those those people just, you know, dubbed the original fish.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. This makes so much more sense now. (laughs) The actual (laughs) Nemo is Australian. (laughs) Uh, Okay. The Dish, another great film set in Australia.
1: I love The Dish. Actually, that's the best argument you've made yet. I absolutely adore The Dish.
0: Better than Mad Max 2.
1: Yes. A lot warmer, you've got to admit. Like it's a lot nicer and you come out feeling a lot more cuddly towards humanity after watching The Dish.
0: This is true. A lot of films set in Australia, as you said, make you never want to visit. I don't, you know, and this is, I I realise there are a lot of Australian, actually there are Australian listeners to this podcast and uh, in the past I may have offended you with my Australian accent and I'm not going to do that now. Thank God. But But you 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 have a wobble board in your hand, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a wobble board, James, and you well know it. But I will say that, you know, Australia looks fantastic, but it is also home to the 10 most venomous land snakes in the world. It has loads of things that can kill you, and I'm not even including Alf from Home and Away in that, uh, who I walked past in the street once. Um, But, you know, I just, I'm not sure that I would ever want to go there because if the snakes don't kill you, then the spiders will. And if the spiders don't kill you, then it'll be like a kangaroo will punch you in the face. And if that doesn't get you, then Mick Taylor from Wolf Creek will get you. Yeah. And that scares me. I'm not sure that I wanted to, to do that
2: I have been to Australia everything tries to kill you even some of the sheep really <laughs> Yeah. what were you doing to the
0: sheep that made them want to kill you it's hard to say <laughs> uh, one last film because again if we start listing films that are set in Australia or made in Australia we'll be here all day Somersault Also, that was a very good one yes. Shine also yes. a great film Yes, Howling Three.
1: It's <laughs> Howling Three.
0: Howling Amazing! Three. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Um, Kangaroo Jack, of course. Kangaroo Jack.
1: Let's let no no of course. The film
0: that wins his argument, the best film set in Australia, Crocodile Hunter, Collision Course. So Ross McKay, we've ignored your question and I probably mispronounced your surname, but uh, there we go. Let's have the next question now from at Obstacle Three. First time this person's ever had a question asked on the podcast. Ooh. Yeah, I always, the ones that, you know, I've never asked before always stand out to me. He, he or she asks, Roger Deakins just received his 12th Oscar nomination and has zero wins. Who is your favourite Oscar non-winner? By this, of course, we mean people who've been nominated many, many times, but have never won an Academy Award. So, have at it.
1: My favourite is, is perhaps the most fortunate or unfortunate of the lot, and that is Kevin O'Connell. Mm-hmm who is a sound uh, mixer. Yes, I I googled
0: him this morning as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I knew him before, but I just couldn't remember his surname. Um, He holds the record for the most Academy Award nominations without a win. He's got 20. (laughs) So he is... I think indisputably, let's let's be clear minded about this. He is at the top of his profession and then some. This is a guy who has serious sound mixing ability. Um, but he has not yet.
0: If you want won. sounds mixed.
1: If you want sounds mixed, get Kevin O'Connell. If you can get him. He's you, probably yeah. pretty busy.
0: He's probably crying to be
1: honest. <laughs> But yeah, he's been nominated for his first was for Terms of Endearment, where he lost out to the Right Stuff. In fairness, the Right Stuff has rockets, and the Terms of Endearment has practically none. <laughs> just so he's exactly. always going to lose that. Yeah. That's
0: a criteria in which they work. <laughs> there
2: are fewer rockets.
1: Well, you know, it's one of them. June, um, he was nominated for. Uh, lost to Amadeus. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to. I'm just going to skip through them. Top Gun lost to Platoon. How do you lose
0: to Platoon? Top Gun is a much but I can't make that
1: argument. Well, I no, but in terms of sound mixing, like when the the planes go past each other and go
0: whoosh yeah lots of whoosh lots, of, lots of,
1: whoosh. of whoosh and there's a significant
2: amount of rocket in that there so is. You know.
1: and that should have i would have thought that would help but i guess platoon also has kind of rockets um uh-huh. he was up for the rock he worked on twister uh-huh. conair armageddon uh-huh. pearl harbor spider-man and spider-man 2 chris a favorite of yours
0: tops out mixing
1: uh memoirs of a geisha fewer rockets again except for maybe the you know fireworks can mm-hmm. uh apocalypto and his last one was in 2007 for transformers oh. uh, where he lost the Bourne ultimatum um
2: it's hard to believe he didn't win for The Rock, which actually has Rock It in the title and a Rocket Man gag in the film.
1: I know, he, he really should have. For on his, on his last one there for Transformers, he said, if you could bottle up the way I felt this morning when I found out I was nominated, people wouldn't buy drugs anymore because this is just the best thing on the planet. So he he maintains his sense of perspective and realises that he is doing extremely well.
0: I'm, so. I'm, I'm concerned that he hasn't been nominated since Transformers. I'm, I'm worried about him. Uh, I'm looking at the films he's made since Transformers. And, uh, you know, he seems to have... He's gone into uh, a a different phase of his career. Uh, So he's worked on things like The Muppets, Muppets Most Wanted. He seems to be Jerry Bruckheimer's go-to guy for for mixing sound. He's worked in Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. All right, okay. So I think what we should do now is we should appeal to Hollywood. Yes. Uh, If you are working on an Oscar-worthy film, whether it's Oscar bait or not, if you think this has a chance of, of winning... Little gold guy at the uh, beginning of the year. Please hire Kevin O'Connell. We need this guy to win an Oscar.
1: Hang on, he's on Pitch Perfect too. Job done.
0: Job done. Oh, hey, yeah. Helen, weren't you also on Pitch Perfect uh, too? That's right,
1: I was. We should have hung out. Oh, sorry, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he is my favourite because that is an astonishing uh, line of work and, uh, you know.
0: I want to know his everything. mindset. I want to talk to Kevin O'Connell. I just want to, yes, he seems very happy about being nominated for Transformers, but 20. 20- Nominations and no win, you would probably. Does he expect to lose now? Has he prepared a speech just in case it ever happens? You know, was he sad the first time? Was he sadder the 18th time? (laughs) Does he cry? Does he think that, you know, maybe it's not validation of his efforts? Does he have a massively empty mantelpiece? I, yeah, what I want to talk to him, Kevin, if you're listening, and I know you are because you work in a sound department. Get in touch with this man. That was a terrible gag. People who listen he has ears. Therefore he's listening. Get in touch. Uh, anyone else? Because there's there's uh so Roger Dickens has got twelve. Thomas Newman, the composer, has twelve. Uh Alexandra Displa mm. uh, who has been nominated twice this year, has uh, been nominated eight times without winning. Um, and every time they're in they're in a category, Thomas Newman especially, you must look across and go, Is Williams nominated this year? <laughs> uh, Williams. Damn you, Damn you, Williams. Williams. Um, but yeah, 12, 12 and 8. Is it about the number of nominations, though? Or is
2: it just, there are some people that it's inexplicable, like Hitchcock, who yeah. didn't win an Oscar. You know, it just Five kind of blows your mind. Five nominations, no wins. Yeah, sometimes
1: yeah. you you just don't understand what they're thinking. I mean, to be honest, I think nowadays they're becoming a little bit more aware of that and sometimes, sometimes one suspects they're giving somebody mm-hmm. the Oscar because they should have given it to them 20 years ago. I mean, Jeff Bridges for Crazy Heart, it's a very, very good performance in that movie, but that film wouldn't have got the attention at God, I think, if he had won, you know, 10 or 15 years yeah. before. Um, Julianne Moore this year for Still Alice, that's a film that made no impact whatsoever at the box office, really. It's, again, an incredible performance by her, um, but she's the front runner because she's been so consistently good for the last 25 years. Um, not because she, you know, this is a particularly stunning uh, performance by her standards. Um, so, yeah, may- maybe the next time Kevin O'Connell or Thomas Newman is up for anything, they will win just because, you know, they should have won years and years ago.
2: True, true. But do you um, know more, exactly that. I mean, but you look at Sigourney Weaver, Amy Adams, you mm. know, Johnny Depp, Tom Cruise, You know, obviously and Leo as well. You know, people who have been consistently Mm. snubbed at the Oscars. But weirdly, Kathleen Kennedy actually stands out for me. She's been nominated, I think it's, I want to say around eight times, Lincolns, Munich, E.T., Colour Purple and other films, uh, and never won.
1: Yeah, the fun thing is she produced this, but she wasn't one of the credited producers as far as the Oscars were concerned, which is um, bizarre.
2: Must be kicking herself now. I think
0: she's doing okay. <laughs> she yeah, <laughs> I think she's all right. Other other people who've uh, had loads of nominations but never won in the past: Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously there are honorary Oscars, but we're talking about people who were nominated for Oscars yep. and, and 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 never won. Uh, Peter O'Toole went eight without winning any. Richard Burton had seven nominations and didn't win any. It's, so it, it's it's certainly a theme throughout Oscar history. Um, but I'm, what I'm wondering now is: Do the likes of Kevin O'Connell and Thomas Newman do they Diversifying. <laughs> does Kevin O'Connell reinvent himself as an actor and come back and win in that category next year what an inspirational story that would be that really would be that would be amazing I'd,
1: I would buy the biopic rights right now
0: for yeah that. or you could you know maybe just make a live action short Peter Capaldi has an Oscar that's true because does, of a live yeah. action short so Thomas Newman should write and direct a short and win next year Okay, well,
1: good luck to them in those categories.
0: Or you could just start a
1: Kickstarter campaign. (laughs) To buy an Oscar.
0: Not to buy an Oscar. You can, you know, although that wouldn't be too bad, but just, you know, (laughs) please give me an Oscar. (laughs) Please. Um, That would be so nice. Thank you, guys. I'm
1: not sure that's how Kickstarter
0: works. No? No, okay. I never understand these things. Okay, thank you for your questions. Uh, If you wish to have a question read out in the Emperor podcast, and why wouldn't you, uh, do send them in via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine and use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it. Uh, we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine and you can email us, of course, at podcast at empireonline.com. Online, not magazine, empireonline.com. Okay, time now for our first guest. Boyhood started life roughly 12 years ago as a small indie film, an experiment that Richard Linklater must have thought would only be seen by a select few. Basically, it tells the tale of, of one boy over the course of his boyhood and they shot it for about a couple of weeks every year for 12 years. Now the movie could well be the Oscar front runner. Ethan Hawke, who stars as Mason's dad, Oscar Mason, in That's the film, uh, came in recently to talk about the film as he hit the BAFTA trail and he spoke to me and the office's chief, Richard Linklater and Ethan Hawke's super fan, making her podcast debut, Liz Beardsworth. Enjoy. Uh, we voted Boyhood our film of the year. That's because you are 50. intelligent, <laughs> because you have a brain in your head. And you're the best movie magazine in the world, so good. It, it's, it's an amazing film. Uh, it's such a, a beautiful film as well. But obviously, it was shot piecemeal over 12 years, roughly. Of course. Uh, this year, I guess, was the first year you didn't have to film anything for Boyhood. Yeah. Did you feel lost? Was there a period, was it always the same
3: period of time over the 12 years, the same no, two weeks? never. I mean, if, if it had been that, it would have been like every Christmas. Or every. Yeah. It wasn't, um, you know, we would do it. One year at Christmas, and the next year it'd be uh, August, and then the next year it'd be March. It was mm-hmm. never like um, 12 months. It would be nine months. It would be... Uh, then my character wouldn't come up for a while, so it'd be 14 months for me. Mm. It was always... It was kind of... What is Dylan calls it, his never-ending tour? Well, this is Rick's never-ending movie. He was kind of always shooting it, you know, because he would... He would shoot for three days, and then you'd hear about, oh, wow, a new Harry Potter book's coming out. Wouldn't it be amazing if the kids went to the Harry Potter Sonic? All right, let's get everybody together. Let's do it. But that was only for a day. Okay. You know know what I mean? And then you go. And then there were bigger ones where he would go, okay, Eller, I really want to do a scene around when you get your hair cut. So don't cut your hair for two years. I need long hair, and then we're going to shave it. and Eller was game and he was like alright cool <laughs> and um yeah. it was just you know and sometimes it'd be okay well I want to do a scene of baseball game and actually we gotta get it this year cause I want to mm. get Clemens pitching yeah. and so we're gonna do it two months from now so they wouldn't you know it was, okay. it was always uh, very fluid very fluid mm.
0: so there wasn't a period this year for example you were just walking around staring at the wall <laughs> going
3: ah oh, I should be filming well, Boyhood now yeah, this that'll is- be next year Yeah. Oh. because this year the movie's been on our mind more than ever uh I've never done so much promotion for a movie in my life mm. because, first of all, positive that people cared. Yeah. Right? Mm. People want to yeah. talk about it, so Maybe that's good. B, you know, we're releasing the movie through IFC, which, I mean, this is now the biggest film of their history. Wow. Um You know, we've, we've never... The, it needed... A lot of love. This movie. I mean, they didn't have a but. You know, if if it had been Fox Searchlight or whatever, they could have put twenty million dollars into PNA, yeah. and the movie could do well. This is a tiny little distribution company um that had the foresight to invest in the movie. Mm. Right. I mean, who? I remember when Rick came to New York. We had been talking about it for a little while, but he came to New York to try to raise the money for it, and it was a how do you say to somebody? Okay, here, here's a here's a plan. I'm going to make a really weird movie. Doesn't have a script. I'm going to cast <laughs> yeah. an unknown actor, who's who we can't sign a contract with because you, he's too young. He's too young. Mm. But we're going to get him. We're going to shoot him for 12 years. All right. Yeah. And if you just give me a little bit of money every year for 12 years, I'll give you this weird three-hour art piece. You, you know, and maybe you'll make your money back. People act like, "Oh, how did you guys do that? What if somebody died? What if you got a, you know, lost a limb or whatever?" The biggest miracle of the thing is that Jonathan Searing didn't get fired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because these film executives get fired, like, yeah. you, you know, what I mean, they, they, they're a dime a dozen. These guys, yeah, yeah, right. And not only did he not get fired, but IFC stayed. In, I mean, Warner Independence has gone. You know, all Miramax is gone. All the big, little art house. Mm. You yeah. know, whatever you call those things, mini major, the mini major, yeah, they're all gone. <laughs> yeah. um, IFC is still around now. They don't have, but they didn't have enough. You know, they they got chump changed to release a movie. Yeah, you know, yeah. they they make Sony Classics look like big spenders, and um, uh, so it required a tremendous amount of energy from Rick and Patricia and myself, and mm. to a lesser extent, Eller and Lorelai. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Was paid off. You are you surprised yeah, yes. at how how much people are loving it, or I, mean,
3: I think I'm still in shock. You know. <laughs> and so to answer your question, I think hmm. next year hmm. I'll think, what did, Where did the movie? I mean, I've been wor- I've been working on this movie for you know 12 years, and this is the 13th year, and I've worked harder on it this year than yeah. any other year. But yeah, I am to answer your question. I am in shock about <laughs> that people cared.
0: Uh, Lizzie interviewed uh, Richard Linklater last week. And yeah. Here in London? Yeah, here in, London, here yeah. in this room, in fact. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. In this very Ooh, room. this is the boyhood famous. room. Yeah. It is. This is the boyhood suite, yeah. <laughs> you're going to rename it officially. And he's, he was sent to you, Lizzie, he wasn't, he's, he's begun to consider possibly, maybe at some point, continuing.
1: Well, yeah, he did say that. He said it's too soon to say for sure, yeah. but yeah, the 20s he was saying are very interesting, so if you were up for it, he might... Revisit these characters? Yeah, he can (laughs) say that.
3: I would make a case to be made that the the sequel already exists, meaning that if you showed Before Sunrise, right, if you stop this movie Mm. and then you show Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight, it's kind of the same character. I think in a lot of ways, Eller and I were, it's not the same, but it's certainly similar. I wouldn't, you know, I could see Mason Jr. Taking the URL just mm. after college, meeting yep. some French girl on a trip—you you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You could make a case to be made that the the films have a yeah, d- they
0: yeah
3: have a, there's a continuity like a there. Yeah. Spiritual.
1: Yeah. yeah, so does spiritual that mean mm.
0: does that mean that uh, Richard would have to go in and what replace LR with you uh, in this movie, or replace you with LR in the before? Yeah.
3: In truth, maybe the I've always said that what rick and i were working on, on on the before trilogy yeah is romantic love meeting time hmm. and in in boyhood is a family meeting time you know hmm. we've kind of exchanged uh, plot for time yeah yeah and okay. um you could continue on with Eller. you could do that you could you could there's no other moment of your life that works on such a specific grid Mm. Where to, like, yeah. time is first through 12th grade. It's got a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, no other point in your life, the only other thing you could possibly do is do the exact same thing, exact same movie with Eller being the dad and start it um, with the day that Eller. Yeah, it becomes a father. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. and it wouldn't, so it wouldn't be the same six, you know, you and, and you'd, then you'd see it from a different vantage point. You'd see fatherhood as opposed to boyhood, yeah. you know, and so, and then I could still be in it. Patricia could still be in it as the yeah. grandparents, but we would have a <laughs> subsidiary, you know. Oh,
0: that's so. interesting because I, I honestly thought that maybe you and uh, Patricia were, would be lobbying Mr. Link later to do this on a, on a daily basis. Like emails going, I, I miss that experience. I want that experience
3: again. But you're not. You're saying wait 10 years. I, I think that the. I was so moved by the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. The way that Rick ends the movie, I really do feel like it's finished. And the, mm-hmm. I, I'm one of the few people, you know, I saw it six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. I watched <laughs> the thing be put together. And I've always. I was the voice in his ear always whispering, you know, but how do you end this? bastard you know (laughs) you got to sail this shit what's the point of it all why do we and in the way that he resolved it you know and it's so beautiful it's almost like an old-fashioned western there with this very modern people Mm. it's populated um in this you know it almost looks like a john ford movie yeah you you, you know the light and so you're very aware of cinema its relationship to time and 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 he it's very beautiful (laughs) It's it's is this like little moment where he almost looks into the lens, you you know this is it's the look cl- that final close up is very powerful where it's almost we are him, and I, it's why I hesitate. People love the idea of continuing on, but that implies that the movie isn't finished to me, and the movie's done. I mean, we he could, we could start another movie if we wanted, but it would have to work as well beginning middle to end. Yeah, that's the key to the before trilogies is this. you have to. I love it when somebody will say to me yeah but before sunrise is always my favorite the other ones are okay and whatever or somebody will say no before midnight for me is my favorite before because they all you actually don't need to see the other ones they work best if you have Mm. but kind of like the rabbit run books or whatever I mean you can read any one of them doesn't matter
1: yeah, yeah awesome. I've, I've watched them in the reverse order. Have and you, actually we, they work really interestingly bet, that way too. It's really Especially moving to see them meet.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I bet it is. And it's also cool because the way it starts, the way Before Sunrise starts is with a 40-year-old couple fighting. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know? yeah. And so that's why when people ask if we're going to make more, a part of me feels like, I don't know, they might. They they, they they work so well as a trifecta.
1: Please make another okay, one. I'm right, just right. begging
3: you. I, did, I have to admit I did have, um, if Rick is talking about doing another boyhood, uh, I called Rick and Julie the other day because I've, I was the one who felt certain we were done. And then about a week ago, I had a dream where Julie and I were watching the fourth film, and we were, <laughs> and I so I, w- we, I was sitting next to Julie in my dream watching the fourth one, and I so I've, I saw images from it. I saw what it looked like, and, and, uh, and I called Julie. I was like, oh, shit, it's on. You know? Great. <laughs> like,
1: uh, you know, like, made my day.
3: <laughs> can, you,
0: uh, can you shed a light on what you saw it in your dream? It
3: was really, really funny. <laughs> yeah? Like it was a full-blown comedy. So that, it, it was really, really warm and funny, and that was a surprise because people anticipated to go to some even darker place. Yeah. The surprise yeah. was, what if it didn't? What if it went to some extremely light place?
0: That would be very, very... Yeah. yeah. we
1: tearing a strip out of each other yeah, yeah, and yeah. breaking my heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking, of, Can I just yeah. ask, speaking of the before films, because um, I'm slightly obsessed with them, um, are there any kind of scenes and ideas that got discarded from the first three films that you can
3: remember? Yeah, there's several. Yeah. There, there's, there's, some, there's been some ideas that have been discarded from all three films. We, we, we had to do a, a sketch... For whatever reason, you know Rick's part of this thing of the Austin Film Society, and, and, and you know, they raise money for Texas filmmakers, and it's, it's a great organization. Uh, when we were down there, we did like a little promo piece of Julie and I walking down the street in Austin, just a little thing. and we put it in this, because it's been cut out of all three films. Is a monologue by me talking about Tolstoy's older brother, who was the real uh, genius of the family, but lacked the necessary vanity to become an artist <laughs> you know the idea that you know to really achieve great things you actually have to be a pompous asshole um, <laughs> and and this is this thing and we we put it in before sunrise and cut it and we tried to put it in yeah. before sunrise and cut it and we put it in before midnight and we cut it so it's dead it's it's definitely it's been it's not gonna make the cut
0: <laughs> oh man that seems a shame there's a, there's it's a short a funny yeah. speech yeah uh, Is that something you believe, that you have to be a pompous asshole to achieve success? or
3: Maybe. Uh,
0: I've got to ask then, I've got to ask a follow-up question. Uh, does that mean you yourself consider yourself to be, in part, a I'm pompous asshole? I'm definitely a pompous asshole. <laughs> no, I, um, no. We all
3: have, uh, you, you have to fight it, you know. You have yeah. to fight that... Uh, the pompous blowhard that w- wants to roar up in every one of us, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, actually, I mean, that's not even a joke. Okay. I and mean, I do think that all of us have that. What about me? You see it in kids so much. But me! It must be
0: tricky as well for actors, you know, writers, directors who get told on a daily basis by people like this that you're great. Yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> and really, you know, I actually heard somebody speak on this better than anybody I'd ever heard before. It was Jeff Tweedy from wilco yeah. had a great thing he said is that oftentimes you can mistake they're complimenting you so it feels like you're special what they really mean is they love rock and roll yeah mm-hmm. because i didn't invent the guitar and i didn't invent these chord progressions <laughs> you, you know and i didn't invent the act of coming to a stadium to see and people come and they go i love wilco yeah you know what yeah. they mean is i love rock and roll yeah And and then Mm -hmm. to which you can say me too, and when people say they love boyhood, to me what they're really saying is I love movies. Mm -hmm. Thank God, so some movies are happening and movies are relevant, and there's Mm -hmm. something new happening in the form, and you know, and we're an appendage of that, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. without you, the audience, Mm -hmm. without you writing about it, it's not important, you know. Mm -hmm. Without, you know, if there's so many things that went into Rick coming up with this idea um a you know you can't take fassbender you can't take romare yeah. you can't take these people out of his brain yeah. y- y- you know and without them the movie wouldn't exist and without patricia the movie wouldn't exist without yeah. Eller it wouldn't exist without you, you know so jeff kind of articulated it. i always think of that whenever you're like yeah i can let because success is almost as hard to deal with as failure because failure at least inspires say- you to be to go no you know when people ignore tape or something when yeah. we work our hard on it and yeah. nobody cares about it and yeah. it can't come out and blah, blah blah you're like damn it and um it inspires you to go no i'll do it better damn it um whereas success can't inspire sitting in your fat ass being yeah. pompous right but if you look at it like no actually no See, when people love boyhood, they're saying they care about innovative cinema, they care about r- real people, and, and they care about a movie that doesn't have anything blowing up, and, and so it it should inspire yeah. us to go yes, yes, yes. So you can't if you look at it like you're wonderful, mm. then there's then you sit on your fat ass. If you look at it like people saying no, cinema matters. Well, then, uh, the you know then it's helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Ethan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks Abby. for having Thank me on. Thank you very much, Ethan. Lizzie B, our production editor, who makes sure we get the magazine in on time every month, almost every month. I, I was four weeks late once, but anyway. Uh, yeah, very very cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What a guy.
0: Yeah. No, Lizzie. Oh, also <laughs> as, well, girl. as well. Yeah. No, Lizzie's very cool. No, she she uh, handled it well. She was a little bit nervous about interviewing Ethan. Uh, but yeah, that was very good. Enjoyed that. Uh, right. Shall we have some movie news? Let's do Uh, it. I guess the biggest movie news this week, or this morning, the morning of recording the podcast, because I'm sure Hollywood will unleash something huge overnight, is the the news of Simon Pegg. It's been a big week for Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. Simon Pegg is going to co-write Star Trek 3.
2: Which will now undoubtedly be called Star Trek 3 The Search for Scott.
0: (laughs) Undoubtedly. (laughs) Undoubtedly. Where's he gone? Hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to engineering
2: say. somewhere, he's, he's hiding behind the dilithium crystals.
0: He's down the shops. Mm. Uh, do you have any any amusing plays on you've got red on you? Any of the amusing lines? You've got, got red shirt on you.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I mean, that, which is possible because they could like explosively die. Is... Uh, but we should probably talk about the actual news in this story, which uh, is yeah, the, the news that he'll be writing the film mm. and uh, he'll be working alongside confidence writer Doug Young. Um, so they're taking over from, I think it was Patrick McKay, John D. Payne, and Roberto Orsi, who were mm-hmm. going to write the script, so I don't know if this is completely starting over from scratch or another draft of that mm-hmm. that idea. Uh, Orkey, of course, was also down to direct and is now out. Uh, Justin Lin is currently in the captain's chair, um, set to direct. Um, but again, the plot is under wraps, as you would expect for anything even vaguely associated with J.J. Abrams.
0: There will be stars and there will be trekking. One would
1: hope uh, there's Across been a the remarkably little trekking in the last two films, actually.
0: They did seem to set so, up at the end of the last one that yeah. there would be more trekking in this one.
1: They did, but then they kind of set that up at the at the end of the first one too. This is also true. Really
0: so. <laughs> this is also true. Uh, I wonder if Benadine Cumberbund will be back as uh, as John Harrison. <laughs> John- as John Harrison in this one. Would it be amazing if everyone turned out the next one not to be the people that you thought they were?
1: Wouldn't it be amazing if they all turned out to be Can?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm Can. No, I'm Can.
1: And so is my wife.
0: <laughs> that would be so much fun. Uh, thoughts on on Peg writing this? This, is, this seems like a, a, a good move.
1: It does. I mean, he's, he's obviously, as we know, a very funny and a very smart writer. Um, I would say he's probably at least as much of a Star Trek fan as anyone who's worked on the rebooted franchise mm-hmm. to date. Um, I think he knows his onions. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and his dilithium crystals, of course. So I, I'm I'm rather I'm rather encouraged by this. I don't know much about Doug Young, um, who's who's going to be writing with him. He's a confidence
0: um, writer, you say. Does that mean he yes. wrote something called Confidence? He wrote, or he's he there the, to. Yeah, You're great.
1: Them. Keep on going. Yes. How good would that be to have someone like that? <laughs> um, although that be that be enormously helpful as a writer if you had somebody in the background doing that. But no, he did write Confidence, which is the one with Ed Burns, the sort of a, a Rachel Weisz and, yeah. and That one movie so uh, I don't really know much about him but he could be the biggest sci-fi fan on the planet and we just we just don't see it from his back catalogue so um, mm. you know benefit the doubt for an eye Again, but yeah
0: yeah it's interesting because Peg obviously he has written things on his own he rewrote the uh, script for Run Fat Boy Run um, but traditionally he's worked with a partner Jessica Hines on Spaced and Edgar Wright on those three movies they did. I think we've mentioned it one, Probably once or not, twice in no. the podcast. Um, uh,
1: Nick Frost and Paul. Nick so. Frost
0: and Paul, indeed. And so it's going to be interesting. This is Doug Young, someone that he really knows, or they really two people who've got an interesting take on in the material who've been thrown into a room by Paramount. Also, we should point out, with a mandate to write the thing really bloody quickly.
1: Really fast, yeah. It's supposed to be out July... Tomorrow. Next- <laughs> <laughs> July 2016. That is not a long time Yeah. Um, in in the in the, you know... The world of modern blockbuster,
0: but this seems to be happening more and more. I mean, there was a revelation a couple of weeks ago that the uh, the the newborn film, Born Four, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, the fourth born movie. There has not been another one uh, since the Born Ultimatum. Of course not. Uh, that uh, Greengrass and Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon and uh, and Green long term editor Chris Rouse are writing the script as we speak, and that's out. I think right around the same time, same time next yeah, year, next summer. So seems to be like a seat-of-the-pants element.
1: That one at least has, you know, more real-world in-camera stuff. We don't know that.
4: Probably. We, yeah, okay. It could be
1: Born Goes to Space. It you could be know. Born Goes but But ruling out the Born Goes to Space option just for a minute, it's, it's yeah. more likely to be in-camera. Yeah. Whereas uh, this one, that for all we know, they've already started work on some of the effect sequences. You do get that sometimes when they're still rewriting the story, but they've actually got... They know who's going to battle who in space and are already working that up. So it may well be in pre, deep in pre-production in that in that sense already. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting stuff. Apparently, uh, uh, Young got his job um, through a, a film called Diamond that he wrote for Bad Robot. Um, but we don't know anything about Diamond either. It doesn't give us anything more to go on. <laughs> um, so we're just going to say, Simon Pegg, yay. Yeah. Scotty for script duties. I mean, mm-hmm. Scotty can fix anything, right? so that's the the theory exactly so he can certainly sort out a script i mean easy yeah
2: is this a conscious tonal shift that's my interesting thing from a star trek point of view because i mean if you look at the the original 10 movies for Uh star trek you have fluctuations in tone you look specifically at star trek's nine and four and they are basically comedies they're capers so Mm -hmm. is this something that they brought him on board to turn into more of that kind of thing to sort of you know Shed a little bit more sci fi and embrace a little bit more accessible comedy. Because Four, I think, is still the highest grossing of the original Star Trek films by some distance. Which is the one where they go, if you've forgotten, that's The Voyage Homes, where they go back to Earth to find whales. Uh, And it's. They find whales, it's right next to England. They find whales uh, weirdly in San Francisco. Just obviously a curious place to look for it. But uh, yeah, I, you know, and it, it's a comedy caper. It's all about fish-out-of-water stuff. It's very, very heavy on the gags. Nine didn't do so well because it's, it's funny, but it's also in-jokey. It's also um, dreadful. But... It's, also it's also a bit also... dreadful. Yeah, and there's uh, yeah. F. Murray Abraham having a constant uh, facelift. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, I'd be interested to see what they do with this. I mean, the first two, certainly the first one, I think Star Trek, JJ's first Star Trek was quite, I thought, I went so heavy on the comedy, but had, had good comedy chops. Mm. I think uh, Into Darkness, less so. It's in the title, not surprising. This one, though, I don't know. Could it be a proper old. Uh,
1: I don't know. I don't
0: think. Rump? I don't think Pegs were brought on to write Carry On Up the Enterprise. Oh, I I'd thought watch I'd that. quite like that. No, but, but yeah. it could be
1: the, um, Star Trek Three: The Trouble with Tribbles.
0: It could be. That'd be amazing. Yes. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, I, I just, I'm intrigued. It could be a, a one man play, it could be just Scotty in a room. They're really trying to cut down on the budget, you know, but I presume all the, the cast are. Are inked as they say in the, uh, the are, trade yes. r- papers to uh, to return. So intriguing. We know nothing about it at this point in time, but we've talked about it for a good ten minutes. So <laughs> that's there'll be more of that as the uh, as the year goes on. <laughs> uh, and speaking of things we know firstly nothing about, but it's related to to Peg. Uh, Edgar Wright's new movie has finally been revealed. If you didn't know, there was a little bit of brouhaha, obviously, over Ant Man uh, when he departed that project last year. There was uh, lots of rumors. He's been, since been involved. Uh, with a lot of things from uh adaptation of a book called The Grasshopper Jungle. But now, this week, uh, it was announced, or rather last week, it was announced that he, his new movie will be Baby Driver, which is a, uh, uh, a pure action movie about a hitman who listens to an audio tape and he has to uh, under, undertake a very dangerous mission. And this is a pure Edgar Wright original. An audio tape, not an audio book. He's no, not listening to Audible no, while killing people. Yeah, Is
1: this literally a tape? Are we talking about a cassette here?
0: I don't know, to be honest. I'm, I'm just saying audio tape because that's what I, I say because I'm old. It could okay. be a podcast. It could be a podcast. It could be this podcast. It could be this podcast. I met up with that It's thing.
2: almost certainly this podcast.
0: This one's intriguing because I've heard about this project on and off for the last couple of years and it sounds like it could be amazing. There's a, there's a video Edgar made uh, back in 2003 uh, for the band mint royale it's called blue song and it features no fielding as a sort of getaway driver and it's three minutes and it's just really visceral and really funny and it's really really good and this seems to me like it could almost be a feature-length version of that but i'm intrigued this is this is this edgar wright who may now be free of the shackles of a of a large studio mm. finally just going right this is what i want to do this is this is going to be a visual treat it could be like a ninety-minute musical number. I don't, I don't know. I'm just guessing, but it could be. I'm expecting good, ac- great action, great music. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, Ansel Elgort, who's a up-and-coming uh, actor, mm. has been linked with the lead role.
1: He's a he's a good guy. We talked to him a few a couple of months ago, didn't we, for one of his films,
2: <laughs> Diversion? Was it Diversion? Mm, Fault Stars. Fault stars. stars. We stars.
1: talked to him for the Fault Stars, which was obviously a huge hit. Um, he, he was one of, for me, the few bright lights about the dreadful men, women and children. Um, so he could do something quite interesting with, mm. with Wright, I think. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm. obviously I'm intrigued. i you know, pretty much on board for everything he's done so far. So uh, look forward to seeing this one.
0: Absolutely. Very, very exciting in, indeed. I'm looking forward to that one and looking forward to more details coming out about it over the next few months as well. Uh, and then there's uh, a couple of other bits and pieces to, to round up. Um no real Marvel news this week, which <gasps> long-time listeners to the podcast might be relieved to hear, although Anthony Mackie has said that uh, Captain America Civil War will be like Avengers 3.8. I love that man. He's amazing. He's um, no. uh He said basically Captain America 2 was Avengers 1.5. This is more like Avengers 3.8, which yeah. doesn't make any sense, but...
2: Nothing to do with movies, but also Marvel are turning all the comics on their head, which is kind of an interesting one. They're ending... The current marvel universe and combining it with the ultimate universe and a big secret war explosion thing which is happening in the summer so there you go
0: interesting now we talked about this a little bit beforehand this is an attempt by marvel comics to recalibrate their universe so it becomes a little bit more like the mcu so you know the fantastic four are being slowly phased out it seems in the comic book world and there are some cynics out there who suggest that maybe because Marvel Studios doesn't hold the rights yeah. to Fantastic Four, so they don't necessarily want them in the public eye as much anymore. FU to FF? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and they'd probably do the same with Spider-Man and uh, X-Men if they could. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It is. I, I'm,
2: I, I personally, from a, from a comic point of view, X-Men is my absolute favorite line. X-Men, X-Force, all of that associated mutant stuff. So, frankly, if they stopped them, I would stop.
0: I don't think they would ever stop. No, I know they wouldn't. And they
2: wouldn't get rid of Spider-Man either because he's he's too much of a loved character. Yeah.
0: Whereas Fantastic Four has perhaps dipped over the years yeah. in terms of its popularity. So and Johnny can... Storm died, didn't? Did they bring him back? Did he come back? I mean, they normally come back, but
1: everybody comes back. back.
0: Yeah, everybody comes back. Uh, okay, so speaking of uh, non-Marvel news and in, in DC, Warner Brothers. Comic book related movie news. There was a big rumor this week that Ben Affleck's Batfleck mm. would be appearing in uh, Suicide Squad. Which is the forthcoming David Ayer Dirty Dozen with supervillains uh, movie with the all-star A-list cast? Um, yes. Now this this was, and again, cynically speaking, thought as a potential tee-up
2: for another for a Batman Joker movie, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Because yeah. we haven't had enough of those. No. Um,
1: well, it it's just um, I mean, listen, this is still rumor, so we're discussing rumor, which is obviously unfair, etc. And you know, the Marvel universe has not always planned everything out in advance. If anyone tells me that Hawkeye was originally in that Thor script, I'll point at you and laugh. But um, at the same time, you know, this does seem to be making it up as they go along to quite a large extent if they're sort of saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing a Batman Joker film. Remember, we, we sort of said we were, we didn't, didn't we tell you that? We're pretty sure we told you that. We've been planning it for ages. It just seems a bit random. Like, where, where did this come from? Where does it fit in? What's happening? Who are these people? What's going on?
0: I'm sure it'll all be all right in the night. I well, mean, I so. yeah, as we, As we all know, Helen... Uh, they were they planned from the very beginning for Batman to be a part of the Man of Steel sequel, so I'm I'm sure that this is not they're not winging it. That would be that would be. You're right.
1: That's a silly idea. That would
0: be an irresponsible allegation. It's like
2: they won the lottery and died the next day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, Batman turning up in Suicide Squad it's an interesting way to introduce your yeah. Batman, I guess. Um, uh, with a little,
0: he's already been introduced, of, of course. Sorry, by yes, point. he
1: has carry on yep. Um. so this will be just after Batman v Superman colon yes. Dawn of Justice
0: yes it will be uh, it will be just after that it's not bad I mean because I actually I think I said in the podcast a few weeks ago how I thought the idea of introducing Joker first without seeing Batman in any way shape or form that would have jarred for mm. me that would be or jarred for me uh, oh. uh. but this this is this is okay I think this means that I think this shows that there is a little bit of planning going on even if it is kind of winging it as long as he get something down on paper and they begin to have a little bit of a structure a little yeah. bit of a framework
1: I wonder about the whole the, the, again part of the rumour was that it was going to be sort of very close to the sort of Frank miller take on Batman mm. versus the Joker um, mm. and I kind of wonder if uh, if that how that will work because I think some of his well no, I know some of his Batman Joker cartoons have been seriously seriously violent and bloody and really quite tough reads and mm. um, but at the same time, Batman movies, you know, you, you actually want 11-year-olds to go be able to go and see them. So I wonder how they're going to work that out.
0: It is going to be interesting. But uh, I wonder if in the DC universe that Warner Brothers are constructing, whether Batman and Joker have had history together. Which I presume that they will have had yeah. by this point. But that's, you know, and that's let's be excited about this because it's, you know, <laughs> Ben Affleck versus Jared Leto. Uh, I think we're all intrigued to see what his Joker is going to be like.
1: So that's um, Ben Affleck v. Jared Leto, colon... Squee. Squee.
0: Right, one last news story, and then we go to bed. Uh, This is... Jimbo, you've got got a printout here. I do Um, have a
2: printout here. This is
0: uh, news that Kaya Scodelario, formerly of this podcast, uh, may be in Pirates 5.
2: That is literally the extent of the news, yes. Great, let's move on. Kaya Scodelario, or Kay Scodders, as she goes by on Twitter, Mm -hmm. uh, may indeed be in Pirates 5, playing a person. That's good. you excited about that? I'm very excited yeah. that she's playing a person in Pirates 5. <laughs> yeah. uh, could, maybe it's not a person. It could be a monkey. Who knows?
0: Mm-hmm. Probably um, not. Yeah. And what do we know about Pirates 5 so far? Well, it's the fifth in the Pirates of the Caribbean saga. <laughs> I love when you do extended reading around subjects. It's great. It really
2: shows. Yeah. Well, what do we know about Pirates 5? Let's have a look. Pirates this is, this 5. Is, this is a new is... Uh, feature in the podcast called James Googles in, li- in, real, in Real Time. No, no. We know uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No, t- tell no Tales. Death mm-hmm. Mental No tails. Yes. 2017, I think it's out. July 2017. 2017, yeah. It's currently what it's looking for. Um, and that's pretty much it. Jeffrey Rush is going to be in here. Obviously, Johnny Depp's going to be back in here. Uh I think Javier Bardem, Christoph Waltz also connected to that as well. Orlando Bloom also might return. Interesting. That's
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. It is interesting. It's in talks. That's uh, not confirmed.
1: Brenton Thwaites of. <laughs> Brenton.
0: Uh, lo- I'm Brenton Thwaites.
1: Yes who's an Australian actor who's yes. very good in Son of a Gun uh, less good in Maleficent uh, but he's, he's apparently in talks to play a dashing British soldier uh, yes. so he will be the Orly of this one if you will with he, Orly having graduated to be man Orly as yes. opposed to pretty boy Orly I don't know I'm not sure where I'm going with this so they're
0: saying he's young Orly what?
1: He's like the young, handsome one. So Orlando Bloom oh, is like right. the slightly older, handsome one. Oh, okay,
0: so he's not playing young Will Turner.
1: No, sorry, I was confusing you. Okay, you. okay.
0: Because right. Orlando Bloom, it doesn't look like he's age today. He could still play young Will Turner and old Will Turner at the same time. They wanted to do a Days of Future Past thing. That'd be interesting.
1: Uh, would it? Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. The
0: question perhaps that drives this is,
2: is there a big appetite for Pirates 5, do we think?
0: Well, the last one, despite being absolutely rubbish, uh, <laughs> grossed over a billion dollars. So, so, yes. Yes. At least <laughs>
1: yeah. in the studio, Cause, yes. Because <laughs> part
0: of me would have, would have maybe stopped by now. I'm intrigued by this one. The directors intrigue me. Uh, so the Contiki directors. Norwegian directors of Contiki, uh, Joachim Ronin and Espen Sandberg and apologies once again to our Norwegian listeners for mangling those pronunciations <laughs> um, but they intrigue me I'm, I'm, I, I think this could be I think this could be okay um, I'm, I'm the, the worry for me is Johnny Depp uh, Jack Sparrow burnout there seemed to be an awful lot by the, the time of the last film people were going oh not first time the movie came out first one people, oh, what a breath of fresh air this performance is who knew Johnny Depp could be so cookie and off the wall and then by the fourth one, it's like, oh, God, not this guy again.
1: Well, we're going to talk more about Johnny Depp in a little bit. but um, mm. sp- Spoilers. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I think that's a genuine concern. I will say also, um, the, the directors, who I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, um, they also made Marco Polo, which I've been watching recently, and which is they very made- good. The, the the TV series Marco Polo. And it's it's really, really entertaining. So um, that so gives me some hope as is well. Is this
2: a good move for them, you think?
1: It might be. If they can bring some of, some of the kind of the... F- the fun and also the weight that they got into Marco Polo uh, into Pirates. I think that could actually be okay. what it needs. It, it needs to have a little bit of a of heft again because the last one just didn't feel like it had anything to it except people clowning mm, about and murmuring. Very much so. Mm.
2: So you think this is a good career move as opposed to the good advice that they just didn't take? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you set that up like it's it a joke such that a keeps long on giving. Time. This is amazing. Your oh, knowledge of that
2: song's
0: lyrics are, are astonishing. I'm playing the long con on this, yeah. <laughs> My word.
1: Like the old man who turned 98.
0: Yes. Yep. Just like him. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a black fly in your Chardonnay. <laughs> really
1: is. Uh, can I just say very quickly before we leave uh, news that I'm very excited about one other story, which is TV, not film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but J. Michael Straczynski is going to adapt Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars trilogy for mm-hmm. TV. That is amazing. That is proper hard sci-fi that basically Kim Stanley Robinson sat down and thought to himself, how would we terraform Mars? And then answered it. And that's an absolutely incredible series of books. Um, really, really science science fiction. Um with some very very good characters as well, but that's uh, that's a really interesting thing. So hopefully and? that will happen. It's, it's up with US's uh, Spike Network.
0: And um, J. Michael Strasinski, for people who don't know, is
1: is the guy who created Babylon Five, mm-hmm. um, which uh, James and I at least like. Well, I like Fuck it. James can. Naff off, if yeah. You
0: can naff off, naffer. Yeah, Babylon Five
2: is a big part of shit. Yes, Get out. well, we've
1: all heard that, or at least I've heard it a lot since. Um, now it's since interesting, Helen. It. You
2: quite enjoyed Babylon Five at university, didn't you? No,
1: we're <laughs> moving on. Uh, ba- ba- oh, ba- Bab
0: sock was it? Was it Bab <laughs> that you joined uh, at university? I think we may have discussed this in the podcast once before, but for listeners who haven't, <laughs>
1: fine.
0: That's that's good. This is yeah. What's what Helen? Yes. What is Babsock and how were you a part of it?
1: Um, when I went up to university, I didn't have my own TV because I was not fancy. And there was only one shared TV in the sort of the university common room. And it was at the time when Babylon 5 Series 3 was on, which we can all agree was an amazing series that everybody needed to see. Um, so I obviously had to get hold of it somehow. And to do that, I joined uh, something called the Babylon 5 Society, uh, or Babsock for short, just to watch the show. But I was horrified the first time I went because uh, they, you know, the show finished and then everybody, they turned off the, the, the video in those days and said, right, and started discussing it. I like, I don't want to discuss it. That's a bit nerdy, isn't it? Mm. I'd rather just come to Babsock and watch the show like and a non-nerd. And this all happened
2: while you were dressed up as a Minbari.
1: I was not dressed up as a Minbari,
2: but I perhaps should have been.
1: <laughs> anyway, he also wrote Thor... Um, and he's written some amazing comic series as well. If you haven't read Rising Stars, I highly recommend it. But um, but a, yeah, this is a really cool. interesting adaptation.
0: Uh, at university, uh, I joined something similar, actually. It was a big Star Trek Next Generation fan at university. And I joined a, a society that was dedicated to Worf, basically. Uh, and the society was called Worf, a new kind of Klingon society, or as we called it, Wank Sock. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're so proud of yourself for that one <laughs> you have no idea <laughs>
0: you have no idea the mental arithmetic I've been doing <laughs> while you were talking I was just like oh, talk longer I can do this I can do this I can bring it home uh, I apologize to all our listeners for that joke um, but anyway that's the news and now here's Ali Plum with the science bit because this podcast is of course brought to you by squarespace.com and here's ali to explain exactly what that means
4: hello and welcome to the science bit of the empire podcast where ali the editor that's me tells you a bit more about our sponsor squarespace and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal if you're not already in the know or missed chris saying it earlier squarespace is the all-on-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website blog portfolio or online store for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use our offer code EMPIRE. That's one word, EMPIRE. Here are a few more reasons why you might want to use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you. That's search engine optimization, hosting and making your site mobile, tablet, portable device friendly. For starters, they've also got a huge amount of pre-prepared designs and style options for you to be getting on with and then tweak to your taste. If you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name and you'll enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All for $8 a month. You'd have to change that into pounds, obviously, if you're from Britain. With, as mentioned earlier, a free trial and 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code, Empire, via Squarespace.com. Thank you for listening. Here is the rest of the show, which will seamlessly start again now.
0: Okay, uh, it's time now for guest number two on the podcast. We had J.C. Chandor on the podcast around this time last year for the brilliant All Is Lost. He doesn't hang around because he's back again with a most violent year and 80s set New York crime drama which stars Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. As a married couple trying to make their way as entrepreneurs at that time but they're beset on all sides by, by well, dickheads and circumstance, essentially. Uh, Phil Dissemblian and I spoke to J.C. when he came to London recently. Uh, delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by Chasey Chandor, director of the fantastic A Most Violent Year. You're three for three, sir. Congratulations.
5: Thank you very much. Um, yeah, the goal is just to keep getting invited back. <laughs> so, so um, you know, I, I wish it was a, a more noble purpose than that, but I just want to keep being able to tell these stories. So I'm, I'm very glad people, um, at least in this first uh, wave, you know, seem to be understanding mm-hmm. what I was
0: trying to do. And what you seem to be doing so far as a director, because you have Deepwater Horizon coming up, which is going to be a huge, (laughs) epic... Uh, yes. I, I'm not going to call it an action movie but it will have action well it movie. is yeah. it is I mean there's um, part of that certainly uh, and uh, this movie is the complete opposite of All is Lost which was itself the complete opposite of Margin Call uh, we were talking about how in a weird way I mean Sidney Lumet is a name that's bandied around in relation yeah. to this movie but uh, you're kind of almost a modern day Irwin Allen these are almost disaster movies in, in, yeah <laughs> and, and, and
5: someone the other day pointed out that um, that the sort of wides in this movie which like I almost started crying when they said this because I was so excited but the the Wides, there's an opera to it, right? Like to this guy. He's so self-serious in the way he kind of presents himself to the world. And so they were noticing that there was like a Kubrick element, which was the first real direct – that's not fair at all to say. Not the first real director. But the first – person i figured out what a director did i was like six, fifteen, sixteen 15 16 years old and it was by looking at kubrick's movies right and i was like mm. oh my god i see what a director does before that i'd been just sort of wrapped up you know spielberg for me was was like right when i came you know into the movie world and and i was being you know taken on that journey but i didn't really knew what he did or anything and mm. so that was a wonderful compliment that there is that there's a, there's there's Certainly supposed to be a sort of opera, you know, in the tradition of, of gangster films, obviously, going all the way back to the 30s. Yeah. You know, the, the film follows these signposts that are, um, you know, a tra- a cash transaction at mm-hmm. the front. The femme fatale. I mean, if you look at the first image in the movie of Jessica, she's literally sitting at a mirror brushing her hair exactly the way the woman you know is almost always introduced in in those old films so you know i'm following this sort of roadmap but obviously trying to take you on a little different journey as it goes along
6: oh yeah i was wondering i mean there must be is it like trying to get through a minefield of cliches <laughs> you know when you're when you in this country because yeah. in this sort of terrain and it didn't and I say that because it felt fresh and it didn't feel like it was going near those but you know the idea of the the sort of Lady Macbeth figure behind the powerful man and the and no I mean I for a move the way I've sort of you know this
5: movie started as two ideas it was this sort of um I mean I've used this phrase before but it's like you know like the in the wild west the tumbleweeds that roll down so I've learned my writing process is basically um, you know, I don't even have to write anything down and it's very sort of <laughs> complicated and frustrating and hopefully I won't get hit by a bus um, and not remember it, but there'll be two or three scripts rolling down the street at any time, just picking up ideas. So you guys on the way out of the room will do something. And I'll be like, Oh, let me just, that'll, that sort of connects itself to an idea. Right. So I was like seven years or something into this married couple that was building a business together, you know. Why does the one butcher stop on the street kind of say a nice, quiet butcher shop, right? And and then the one at the other end of the street becomes, you know, um, what's your guy's big supermarket? You know, Tesco or what is it called? Yeah, well, yeah. Sainsbury's or something. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. So like that, those two family-run businesses, like because of ambition and all that crazy stuff, like exploded in different ways. And and who's to judge where happiness is or anything else? But they just did, right? Like, yeah. and so I was looking at that, and then. Um, kind of collecting ideas for that from all different fun people um, and and ideas from different places, and then basically needed a job. <laughs> I had written Margin Call and, um, and had shot it, but no one had seen it yet, and I was, like, broke, and I have a family, and, 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 like, so I was out looking for writing jobs. And then kind of a year later, people saw Margin Call, and then I start getting offered directing jobs, right, yeah. that are just, like, the, the run-of-the-mill kind of business of the business. So partially because of what my strengths are as like the like thrillery kind of thing that I did with Margin Call, it makes sense. But the overwhelming like 80 or 90 percent of the sort of raw material books, you know, ideas, articles, this, that were sort of, you know, gratuitously violent, right? You know, that I was getting. And um, and that's just interesting to me as a filmmaker, right? Because it's like, that's what these people want to make. And then you sort of look at all the different reasons as to why that is. And and some of them are totally legitimate and others are are laziness. And, you know, I mean, it's a very visual thing. Films are cut, countercut, cut, countercut, cut, countercut. You know, you want something to be drawing your eye around and, and your action around. And so that threat of violence or gunplay or even swordplay, you know, it's great on film. <laughs> like yeah, It's yeah. fun to watch, you know, obviously. So that's one reason. But then the other is, you know, when it when it doesn't try to achieve anything original in its actual storytelling, it sort of veers
6: into something else, in in my humble opinion. There's that checkoff thing of if you have a gun, and if you find a gun on the wall in the first act, you know it's going to be used in the final act. Exactly. And there is a gun in the first act. You can't talk about whether it gets used in the third act, but (laughs) I mean those things that are in your
5: mind. So I start to look at all that, right? And I'm like, what I've done successfully up until this point, because I watched all my movies in my 20s, like I, I literally... That's when I did, you know, I'd start with the first film of a director and, and watch the whole way through. And, and, I, and I wasn't getting hired to do much else. So I sat around and watched, you know, pretty much every movie that I could get my hands on. Um, but since then, I then had a kid and then started, you know, five years later, started to actually get some work finally after 20 years. And um, so I, I've realized when I'm writing, it's not so much as a director, but as a writer, it is much better for me to kind of be writing From the memory of all those films that I saw, a lot of directors I love go back and they'll watch every classic within a genre they're about to attack. I think the weird thing is by not doing that as a writer, it's allowing me to kind of, you know, skate right up to them, you know, but but hopefully, you know, Jessica's character, there's obviously a lot happening there. Yeah.
6: <laughs> you had an incredible co- ensemble cast for your first movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jeremy Irons, <laughs> Kevin Spacey, Paul, Paul Bettany.
0: Bettany. Oh, Jinx. Demi <laughs> Moore. Me no, I mean, again.
6: fantastic. And, and I understand, you know, that it was very much a kind of on the hoof. There was almost like a school play atmosphere because you were changing Yeah. Theatra- on, on, Behind the sets, and yeah, that mixing. movie was shot
5: in 17 days, so it, we were all there at the same times, like literally, and, and it was all shot on mainly one floor of a really big skyscraper. So the the the, the there were no trailers or anything. Everyone had a little office as their space, and um, and then the sets were intermingled within those little offices. Mm. So we were literally all just, um, you know, there, you'd be shooting one of those scenes in the corner thing. And then next door, like, Spacey and Demi Moore would be hacking a butt. To, I don't think she smokes, actually, but he'd be hacking a, hacking a butt, you know. And you were like, for a first-time filmmaker, it was like, what the heck is going on and you're like, It's non-smoking, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can promise you no one said that.
6: We let him smoke anywhere he needed to. I love it, um, especially for Jeremy Irons. Yeah. He flies out of the night sky as the head of this bank, like a vampire. Yeah. And and you can see him being almost like the legitimate face of the Gruber family, like the yeah. diehard sort of vibe. And, he, and there's this great boardroom scene. Yes, so Th- and that is-
5: that that scene, you know, I sort of wrote the opposite of that scene in this movie, which was in that it was that was filled with all this flourish, right? He got to come in and 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 uh, sort of the key to that scene is he's actually literally doesn't want the words to be coming out of his mouth, so he's using Zachary's character, Zachary Quinto's character. As like his mouthpiece, because he's collected enough of the board there that like he can get the word out, and he basically wants he's like suckering this kid into being. You know, he damn well knows he didn't get up out of bed and fly there if if he didn't know what was going on. Um, so it's so beautiful because he's there, kind of. I mean, that was the craziest rehearsal on on planet Earth. And then in this movie, Oscar and I actually fought a little bit over it. There's the scene, obviously, which is right out of a sort of classic gangster film where the, the families gather around. And what I did there is the exact sort of opposite, which is Oscar arrives at that moment and can't, it's sort of so human, but like doesn't have a, a big, big speech or anything. He, all he can literally say is, is stop, you know, and, and which is, which is more of a kind of human plea than anything else. But those scenes, um, there's one in this next thing that I'm doing that I didn't even know about, and I just found out that this meeting had actually happened. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. It's like. Um, so, anyway, I love those scenes. Whatever you do with them, it's, it's, it's great actors gathered in a room, and, and, and as long as the sort of room feels expansive enough. Um, and then the world is sort of represented in it. It, it seems um, like a really interesting place for me. Um,
0: you've talked about this uh, obviously quite a bit, including in an uh, interview we did for Empire Magazine, but. Uh... Uh, Javier Bardem was he ri- originally connected to the movie, not necessarily signed on. But, yeah, um, and he obviously he's he's older than Oscar, and he would yeah. have brought a different tone, a different a different temper to the to the film.
5: Yeah, it was. I mean, he and I had a wonderful um, couple months, kind of going back and forth over the thing. But but he, um, you know, he's a very passionate guy, and 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 if you know, if he walked in the room, I'd give him a big hug. You know, we're, but but he wanted the story to go in in a little bit more of a sort of you know black and white kind of way and my my filmmaking and, and writing just sort of isn't best in that place and 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 so we kind of agreed to disagree and it was a it was difficult but it but it was what it was and then I was looking at other older actors actually and Jessica you know after that because I was like who else you know who is that and then Jessica started talking to me about this kid from from Juilliard that she went to class with who was a year or two behind her and um So they had never performed on stage together, but they were actually, but they'd done classes together, and they were actually good friends. They they had shared, um, you know, a girlfriend of or boyfriend of his of hers was I think a good good friend of Oscar's, and so they they really knew each other well. And she starts pitching him to me at Cannes right as I had gotten back from a. Meeting with, with, our, with our friend, and I was like, I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> and um, she starts this great, you know, she's like, Well, his mother is Guatemalan, his father is Cuban, he grew up in Miami. He literally got himself into Juilliard, which is like our best, you know, I shouldn't say best, but it is one of our great um conservatories for acting. And so we, he got into like an open audition. I mean, it's like it is the American dream. <laughs> this yeah. guy's like a like yeah. a, and um, and then on top of it, once you start to look at his work, it's um. Yeah, he's like a, a Stradivarius man. That guy is finely tuned, and it's it's um, it's awesome to you know he and Jessica together having that trust because they had known each other for that whole time and come up in the same sort of form of training and like so they kind of ripped the script apart, rebuilt it in their own minds, you
6: know, and and created these characters, which is all you could you know ever hope for. Before we let you go, which I think we have to do in the near future. Uh, a Deepwater Horizon. You look at All Is Lost's IMDb page, it has obviously just Robert Redford's name. Yeah. You look at the IMDb page for Deepwater Horizon, it just has Mark Wahlberg's name. Yes. Have you told him he's playing all of the parts? No, there are, that is
5: a, so are That people. is very different than All Is Lost. That is a, literally a cast of, um, I cannot remember the exact number, but it's 126, I believe, of the survivors, plus the 11 individuals who lost their life, plus this amazing support sort of system around it. So that will be, a cast of 170 or something, um, but it is—it looks like that movie. I mean, uh, you know, of course, it'll famously blow up tomorrow morning. <laughs> now that I'm saying this, but they—I knocked on wood—if anyone's listening to this, I think it's um, for Micah. I'm not but sure. yeah, oh great, thanks. Okay, then I'm now going across the room. There we go. That's So, but that movie, we're we're they're digging the foundation for the set right now. So that movie is pretty much um, a go, and it's a fascinating opportunity um, where it's a a, it's I don't think it's going to come out in the summer I'm not sure exactly when they're going to release release it but it is um, a huge blockbuster budgeted film but about this very contemporary kind of event and and I feel honored and humbled Um, you know we don't make a lot of movies like that at that scale that are sort of about you know real events Um, but it's a it's if you wrote it, no one would believe it, I think is yeah. the best way that that story, the more I learn about it, it's, um, you know, it's as if it's this sort of tragic poem, basically, about our position with oil, we need it. And we know that. And so you can't blame these people um, for working hard to get it. Because um, we're the ones using it. I am, at least. And um, and but yet uh, there there, you know, we you realize when you sort of see what we're going through to pull it out of the earth at this point, yeah. And the amazing kind of human um, intelligence and effort and everything that's that's needed to do it, um, you know, no matter what your p- political persuasion like we're running out of this stuff. Let me just tell you that if, if this is what we have to go through to get it, um, you know we should start looking you know for something else because because um, you know it's fascinating so it's about these brilliant people who who get wrapped up and you know uh, in in sort of a very intense situation so it's it's very much part of the the, the overarching thing I think yeah. I'm gonna make a I'm trying to write a kids movie right now in my head <laughs> for my I have young kids and I'm um, I'm sure it'll still come out where the poor kids are in crisis but 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 it but it'll hopefully be uh, something that they can at least watch watch but um but no it's a, it's an amazing opportunity that movie a disaster movie set
6: in a
0: playground perhaps. exactly exactly the swing is squeaking um the, the two chocolate bars thing we could do that again we're just <laughs> a bunch of kids fighting over chocolate that's bars. what and i was i it. was gonna I, I think i'm just gonna
5: do eight people silent sitting in a room you know just <laughs> take the redford
0: the redford theme you know
5: but well thank you guys i'm a big fan of this i listen to these things so
0: it's really cool to be a part of them thanks very much, indeed, thanks Chandler. Very much. thank you pleasure man thanks guys thank pleasure Okay, let's start the review section now with A Most Violent Year. That's a segue seamlessly from Chasey Chandor into the discussion of his new film, Helen.
1: This is Oscar Isaac as a a Latino uh, immigrant, uh, a a self-made businessman, uh, Abel Morales, and his wife, Anna, who's, of course, played by to Oscar-nominated effect by Jessica Chastain. Um, And they're basically, uh, at a sort of make-or-break moment, they risk everything on this one deal. um, But everything is kind of conspiring against them. So it's it's not quite a year, actually. It's sort of set over a, a much shorter period. I thought about a few months, yeah, like three yeah. or four months. Yeah. Um, but it's in 1981, so it, is, it has got that kind of period feel to it. It makes it a little bit more... Uh, it feels a little bit more lawless than it mm. otherwise would be, and he's basically selling heating oil. He's a one of a number of rival independent sellers um, who who sell directly to householders, buy from these big big uh, businesses, um, but he's trying to buy land uh, to expand his operation, and that's where you know everything mm. kind of centres around. Mm. Um, so you've got this sort of this this couple really under pressure in the in the in the middle, um, but equally soon exerting pressure. Uh, outwards as well and mm. and really forcing other people to come around to them
0: yeah this is a do not be fooled by the title it's ironic like mr play it safe who refused to fly and then when he did the plane went down and he thought isn't this nice um this is how do we get started in this do we this have theme? to pay on this morissette for this
2: egregious butchery of her lyrics i
0: think we, we may have to um yeah, this is a this is not a violent movie. Don't go expecting lots of gunplay. Do not go expecting lots of car chases. Yeah. Uh, although, having said that, it has one of the best car slash foot chases that you'll see in a very, very long time in this movie. But in this movie, guns are a real thing. Guns are a very, very dangerous thing. And uh, this is about one man who is trying to plow a very straight furrow in a world where everyone around him is a crook of some kind. So... It's not quite like The Godfather where you have Michael Corleone who's trying to go straight but he is continually dragged back into the world. Yeah. This is about Oscar Isaac who is, this probably goes out saying, fantastic in this movie. Uh, it's about him just trying to stand the straight and narrow and trying to do the right thing. Um and try not to give in to the pressure that that bears uh, on his marriage yeah. and on his business.
1: And it's interesting, actually, the, the sort of dynamic in the marriage because, of course, she is she's meant to be a gangster's daughter. Yes. So she is a lot more willing to to bend the rules.
0: Yeah, she's very she's very happy to go to the mattresses. Yes. And he is absolutely not. He's he's adamant that that will not happen. He doesn't want to take help from anybody. He wants to get get out of this hole that he's in through no fault of his own. Uh, he wants to get out of it. Uh, by himself uh, and it's a really really compelling drama uh, when uh, the, in the rare moments of violence it does pack a punch but this is this feels like such a well for me a really really wonderfully lived in drama it, 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 it reeks of the atmosphere of of early 80s New York which as J.C. Chandler explained in the interview it was only the second most violent year in New York <laughs> history uh, but it's, it takes place this wonderful snowy time it's very very cold the, the tones and the colours in the movie are very uh, subdued Uh, but this is great. I think Chasey Chandor is absolutely fantastic. I think he's he's the real deal. Margin Call, I loved. If you haven't seen it, it's a very, very talky drama with an all-star cast about the financial meltdown. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, And again, uh, All is Lost was one of my films of the year uh, uh, in 2013.
1: Yeah, terrific. Brilliant,
0: brilliant film. Uh, And both, all these movies are about uh, men and women being put under incredible pressure over a specific period of time and how they rise to, the, to meet those challenges uh, I think he's fantastic And I, 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 this movie was, was overlooked for the Oscars uh, You know that's kind of okay I guess because you can only have five nominees in each category but the performances in this are fantastic from uh, Chastain, from Oscar Isaac, David Oyelowo who's brilliant as a DA mm-hmm. who's ruthlessly just hounding him down and all the way through it's, just, it's yeah. one of those movies that's just filled with character acting gold
1: Those three in particular, if they don't have an Oscar in the next 10 years, something's gone horribly wrong.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think X-Men Apocalypse could be the one that really...
1: (laughs) Does does it for Isaac? I think so.
0: I think so. Uh, Four stars. Four stars in for a most violent year. It is fantastic. Go and check it out. Is it the best film this week, though? Is it even the best Oscar Isaac film this week?
1: I'm not sure. This this brings me back to the, the day, George Mackay Day in October 2013.
0: October 4th.
1: Yes. Well, um, I, I will never
0: forget it. What a day. <laughs> I
1: will
0: never forget it.
1: But there are indeed, yes, two Oscar Isaac films like this week because the second is Ex Machina and it is bloody terrific.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, James, do you want to lead this one or shall I?
0: Ex
2: Machina. Yeah. Yeah, I can do this. Okay. okay. Uh, this is Alex Garland's directorial debut, a uh, science fiction film starring Donald Gleeson as Caleb, the computer programmer who uh, wins a competition at work to go and spend a, a week at the home of his sort of reclusive Steve Jobs-esque Uh, founder of his company. Um, And he flies, played by Oscar Isaac. Uh, And he flies out there and is introduced to Ava, played by Alicia Vikander, who is an android. Uh, And the whole thing sort of takes the form of a Turing test where he has to probe this android and uh, ascertain whether or not she is a believable AI or not. Uh, But of course, everything is not quite what it seems, and life, of course, has a funny way of helping you out when you think everything's okay <laughs> and everything blows up in your face. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's it <laughs> Alana's side, it's, uh, it's a really nice film, actually, it's wonderfully directed, um, and I love the set design for this. It all takes place in this very sort of, uh, you can imagine, this is what Steve Jobs' house actually looked like, where it's this sort of underground bunker and there's waterfalls, it's very feng shui, uh, none of the doors have handles, it's all sort of computer operated and slightly sinister. Uh, although all the doors do seem to be open with slightly strange laser etched uh, key cards, which seem. Rather low tech by comparison. Mm. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Oscar Isaac plays the role, very, very sort of in a sort of very sort of sinister mentor role. Like he's always hungover, drunk, beating the hell out of a punch bag. He he's has a very, very you know, big, you know, really sort of buffed up, um,
0: big beard with a big beard a big and a bald beard. head.
2: Yes, he comes across as a very threatening personality. Complete opposite to Donald Gleason, who's obviously very gangly, very thin, and very, very sort of disarming and likable in this somewhat diffident. Um, but the high point of this, I think, is the two relationships, the relationship between uh, Caleb and Oscar Isaac's character, and of course, Caleb and Vikandra. And she's probably, uh, I mean, well, she is the standout, uh, yeah. the standout in this. I think she's fantastic as Ava. She gives that, that real sort of blend of slightly vulnerable humanity and very sort of deliberate robotic mannerisms. Mm. Uh, and the effects work is really nice. There's that sort of, she wears that suit where you can see her her abdomen glowing through. Um, and it's really nice. That, so the relationship uh, builds between them, and he kind of falls for the incredibly hot android girl. I'm not a huge <laughs> surprise there, you know, Fembot, if you will. And then it becomes a point of who's questioning who, who's exploring who's humanity, uh, and to say anymore would ruin the film. But uh, very, very well done. Very, very yeah. good. I highly recommend people see this. It's not, uh, it's not a fast-moving science fiction film. I think it's, it's much more thought-provoking, much more cerebral. Than that, but yeah. it's uh, yes, yeah, a lot of fun. But
1: it is it is very gripping, like mm. because you're you're never quite sure where your sympathies should lie. No. Um, because they keep you guessing. I mean, it's it's a chamber piece. It's literally those three plus one other person, um, and I guess at the, at the beginning there's a helicopter pilot. But that's it. Mm. That's your entire cast. So it's really really focused on them. You you feel the sort of the claustrophobia of of being in this. Admittedly, incredible house, but they're in that incredible house the whole time and completely isolated from everything around them. So, uh, yeah, this is—I thought this was absolutely terrific. Uh, apparently, you can actually go stay in that house. Apparently, it's a mm-hmm. hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I will certainly be saving up to do that. Myself. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because
0: Norway.
3: Yeah,
2: the uh, the interview pieces almost feel like a sort of reverse Blade Runner, don't they? So instead yeah. of trying to find the machine in the person, they're trying to find the person in the machine, and it's it's a nice sort of interesting psychological study in that regard.
0: And uh, Alex Garland, of course. So this would this would this is not in the sort of visceral nature of. Uh, dread or 28 Days Later No It's more like Never Let Me Go
1: Yes I guess yeah. Actually, It's more of a companion a very piece comparison. to that yeah, okay. very much. It's all
0: about emotion and what it is to be human Fantastic uh, We love Alex Garland at this magazine and uh, you'll be delighted to know that he is going to be one of the guests on next week's podcast mm. So, which hasn't yet happened, uh, but I'm reliably informed it will happen today. Indeed. So looking forward to that one. Four stars then for Ex Machina. Yes. Where would you say, honestly, uh, a scale of the best Oscar Isaac performance this week? <laughs> best performance and then best film. Best um, oscar Isaac performance. To
1: be honest, he has more to do, I would say, in a most violent year. So yes. just just because it's of It's his that, film. It's his Absolutely film. Absolutely his, his film. Just because of that, that's the best performance. But I would say Ex Machina is actually the better film.
0: All right, fantastic. Uh, four stars in uh, for Ex Machina. And lastly, but not leastly this week, um, that's a phrase. We're going to talk about Mordecai. Just to set up very quickly, it's about Johnny Depp and his massive moustache. That's roughly it, Helen, isn't it?
1: Oh, God. Um, I, I I, think you're a sadist to inflict this on people. Um, yes, he, he uh, Charlie Mordecai, played by Johnny Depp. Um, Mordecai! is has grown a horrendous moustache, which he's uh, inordinately proud of. But he's also eight million pounds in debt to the crown um, and has to find a way to pay it off to save his enormous manner which immediately you know puts the viewer's sympathies right with him i mean who could you know resist rooting for a guy who's just trying to save an enormous enormous country pile. So he's uh, he's drawn into the theft of a Goya because he clearly has dodgy underworld leanings uh, by uh, MI5's Inspector Martland, who's played by Ewan McGregor. They went to college together in this. He's he's drawn in to find the lost Goya, but there's a complication, which is that it was once earned, owned by one uh, Goering, I think, and uh, he may have written the code to his Swiss bank account on the back. So it's not just a Goya, it's also hundreds of millions of pounds of, of stolen gold. So everybody's after it. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow plays Charlie's wife, who Ewan McGregor is after, and she's also then trying to help out her husband and find out the painting. Everyone is doing an accent in this film that is not their own. And after a while, I find that incredibly distracting. And they, the tone, you know, is, is going for a sort of frothy PG Woodhouse-esque. High camp. Not even camp necessarily, but just that, that really smart... Humour that, for a star only ever really works on the page. You know, generally speaking, with the possible exception of Fry and Laurie, filmed PG Woodhouse has not worked particularly well. Mm-hmm. And and this isn't as good as Woodhouse. It really isn't. I read the book over Christmas. It's more like Woodshed. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, it's a book by Kirill Bonfiglioli.
0: Uh, <laughs> <they> expertly navigated. <laughs> sorry.
1: And uh, and yeah, it, it I just didn't f- I did I didn't think the book worked because that sort of blithe tone doesn't sit well when people are actually dying. Um, and actually, you know, being afflicted with grievous bodily harm and so on. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's an odd sort of a mix which didn't quite work for me on the page. And it really, really spectacularly didn't work on screen. Jokes just land there. Uh, Johnny Depp is so weird. You're you're genuinely meant to believe that Gwyneth Paltrow's apparently sane and quite nice woman would rather have him than Ewan McGregor's sane and nice cop. And that doesn't ring true for a minute. So uh, I, I hated it. I, I would give two, uh, two stars. And I think that's. We give that two stars. I think that's too, too many. I hate it.
0: Oh, come on now.
2: Come hate on. Now. It. So, you think this should have been our first no star film?
1: Honestly, it would be right this up to This is there your Project me. X. And there's great people in it. I mean, Paul Bettany is doing his best as the sort of thug sidekick to Johnny Jock Pepp. Strap Jock is his Strap his name. is his name. Yes. Unfortunately. Uh, Jeff Goldblum is in it for about two seconds. Olivia Munn is in it for about five minutes Mm -hmm. um it it just it's a it's a mess it's a horrible horrible mess two
0: stars then for mordecai (laughs) it's not the film that i wanted to to be when i saw the trailer
1: yes it's not which was a ludicrous
0: austin powers-esque and that moment
1: isn't even quite in it he doesn't do the sneer. so uh, yeah so uh, i sneered i hope that helps
0: yeah yeah that's that's true that's true Such a shame. So then two stars for Mordecai, which is not a recommendation. Uh, What is a recommendation, of course, on the podcast is three stars, and that's what we've given to Rupert Wyatt's The Gambler, which Mark Wahlberg stars as an English professor who is struggling with a gambling addiction that he just cannot, or in fact will not shake. It's a remake of the 1970s movie by James Toback. Uh, Do go and check it out. Mark Wahlberg is very, very good in it indeed. And uh, also out this week is a documentary, Beyond Clueless, by Charlie Line, otherwise known as Ultraculture. Uh, the guy who wrote the that, that sort of film and, and pop culture blog and it's a, an examination of the impact of teen movies uh, over the years with a narration by Haruza Balk and we gave that also three stars which is a recommendation so do go and check those out if they take your fancy. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by, as I said, Alex Garland, writer and director of Ex Machina, and Paul Thomas Anderson, who'll be here to talk about his new movie, Inherent Vice. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Lou. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. I would like to point out that Alanis Morissette's Ironic is available on the 1995 album Jagged Little Pill, available now from Maverick Records. <laughs> okay. And it's goodbye from me. Uh, I'm off to shave my Mordecai moustache, which I've been going for the last six months. Bit of a shame, then. See you next week. Bye.